Good morning. Our gospel today, our scripture today will be from the Gospel of Mark. It is located on page 709. We will be reading chapter 12, 13 through 27. Much better. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. We aren't swayed by men. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, You are not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will never marry nor, will, nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's okay. <laughs> Nothing is certain except death and taxes. Benjamin Franklin. Perhaps the most famous quote by one of our founding fathers is related to Jesus' encounter in the Gospel of Mark. We still find ourselves on Tuesday of the final week of Jesus' life before the cross. It remains the day after, if you haven't been with us, the, the day after Jesus has spoken out against the temple in Jerusalem. On this day of questions, as it is often called, all the principal factions within Israel seem to be coming together in what appears to be an effort to subvert, or at the very least, to discredit Jesus' authority. Earlier, if you were with us last week, it was the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders who questioned Jesus. Now, three more groups advance with the purpose of putting Jesus on the defensive. The Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees will ask Jesus to address two heavy-duty topics, death and taxes. 
First up, as you heard, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians, two groups that are not uh, normally known for hanging out together, let's just say. Uh, The Pharisees were a lay spiritual renewal movement. Their primary concern was to prevent the the landslide, the cultural landslide of Judaism into Hellenism, into Greco-Roman influences due to the Greco-Roman occupation of the land. They were concerned about sort of cultural accommodation, if you will. The Herodians, on the other hand, were a political party, and they sympathized with the rulers from the lineage of Herod in their general policy of appeasement of Rome, of working with Rome, and of taking social customs introduced by Rome and adopting them. So they couldn't be more opposite. And, and yet earlier on in the gospel, Mark tells us how these two polar opposite groups began to conspire together about how to kill Jesus. And here they are again in the temple. And as you heard, they begin by mutually sweet-talking Jesus, affirming his wisdom and his leadership. And their question is simple, but tricky. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The tax being referenced here was a levy every adult male or female had to pay within the Roman Empire. This annual reminder to the Israelites of their occupied state could only be paid with a silver denarius, an imperially minted coin that violated Jewish laws about idolatry. The inscription on the coin was blasphemous because on the inscription the emperor proclaimed himself to be divine. The very image on the coin, adding insult to injury, was of the emperor himself. He put his own face on the coin, and it was, blast- it was further insult to injury because this was presuming to represent God visually. Hence the question Jesus is asked. Will Jesus endorse the legitimacy of the occupation of Israel by Rome and thereby lose the favor of the crowd? Or will Jesus support defying the authority of Roman rule and thereby risk being branded as politically suspect? of being a possible insurrectionist. Mark quickly lets us in on what Jesus apparently already knows. Their question is a ruse, a trap set to get Jesus into serious trouble. Jesus is asked to make a ruling about Roman law while keeping the law of Moses and the prophets in view. We're going to look at how Jesus responds in a moment, but before doing so, let's also consider the third group waiting in the wings for Jesus, the Sadducees. This is their only mention in the Gospel of Mark. And the Sadducees were an aristocratic branch of the priesthood. They were conservative in their interpretation of the scriptures, and yet they were liberal in their willingness to incorporate Hellenism, again, Greco-Roman practices, into the life of Israel. They were conservative in that they rejected any notion of an oral history of interpretation of the law. They held to abiding to what was explicitly written in the Torah alone. So take, for example, the resurrection. Belief in the resurrection, belief in resurrection, developed within Judaism two centuries prior to the birth of Jesus. It emerged as a way to make sense of the persecution of the Jews. How do you reconcile those who remain faithful to the law that they didn't die in vain? So that's where this belief suddenly emerges within Judaism of the resurrection. However, if you search the first five books of the Bible, five, five books of the Bible, the Torah, you will not find any explicit mention of resurrection. Hence, the Sadducees decided the resurrection was an unjustified interpretation, an innovation of the scriptures, and therefore they refused to believe in the concept. To the Sadducees, life was here and now. Death was the end of us. Hence, they were so sad, you see. (laughs) How could I not throw that in? Out of this staunch belief, 
The Sadducees bring Jesus, as you heard, what might be considered a ludicrous theological brain twister. Their question is rooted in, the provision, in this provision made in the book of Deuteronomy known as the Leverite Law of Marriage. You might remember it when we studied the book of Ruth. If a husband dies, leaving his wife childless, the husband's brother is obligated to marry that widow in order to give her a child to maintain the family name and the inheritance. But if tragedy strikes multiple times within the same family, such that, such that a woman has to marry successive brothers, I don't know, let's just say seven. <laughs> Not seven brides for seven brothers, but seven brothers for one bride. Whose wife will she be at the resurrection, they ask? In the ridiculous shaping of this question, the Sadducees betray a lack of sincerity and more than a hint of cynicism. They offer Jesus a seemingly unanswerable question as a way of revealing the absurdity not only of Jesus, but of anyone who believes in life after death. So these are the three groups. Here are the two questions. What do we do with this? Well, if you were with us last week, I emphasize something that comes into play here. Sometimes the questions we have, the questions we ask Jesus, are sincere. Sometimes the questions we have, the questions we ask Jesus, are sincere. We talked about this last week. But more often than we care to admit, our questions for Jesus, our questions for Jesus, are used as a means of avoiding the answers of Jesus, and we, when we witness Jesus engaging people in the gospel, the gospels, who use questions as a weapon or as a defense, he turns the tables on them. We saw this last week. Instead of giving them the answer they desire, Jesus responds by way of his own questions to lead them into the truth they have already been given but refuse to accept. And once again, here, we see this pattern played out by Jesus through his engagement with these two separate yet related questions about death and taxes. Through the answers he provides here in Scripture, Jesus addresses both our posture to our life in this world as well as our orientation to life in the world to come. In other words, what I want us to notice this morning is how Jesus continues to teach us how to practice resurrection, how to live differently in light of what he is about to do here in Mark. Remember, it's Tuesday of the final week. How to live differently in light of what he has done for us in going to the cross and conquering the grave. So, the first question about taxes, as I said, is a political issue. It's grounded because it's political in the here and now, in the day-to-day -day existence of this life. This topic is as down-to-earth as, let's just say, the coins we carry in our pockets. That's why Jesus says, okay, should we pay taxes or not? Bring me a denarius. And the denarius is brought to him. Imagine him given, being given the coin, and he has the coin in his hands, and he says, whose image is this? Whose inscription is on this coin? Imagine if you were there. The answer is simple, right? I've described it to you. Caesar's. Jesus says, well, the answer is obvious. The coin belongs to Caesar, so give it back to him. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't take a side in terms of the politics of this question? Instead, he eludes the trap by shifting our understanding of what the coin is, what the coin represents. The coin by itself is not a sign of allegiance to an occupying power. It is merely another person's creation, another person's property. Caesar made the coin, therefore it belongs to Caesar. 
Give it back to him. But give to God what is God's. Ah, there's the rub. But give to God what is God's. The second part of Jesus' answer begs the question, doesn't it? What exactly belongs to God? Jesus is reframing our focus. Whose image is represented by the coin? The coin is a creation of another person, so give it back to its creator. I want you to imagine you're in the crowd, and I want you, you probably have heard this text many, many times, this story. I want you to imagine, again, the coin in Jesus' hand when Jesus says, whose image is represented by the coin? The coin is a creation of another person. Give it back to him. Here, Jesus is the second part of his answer. Imagine him pointing first at the coin, and now with the second part of his answer, but give to God what is God's as he points to the person who gave him the coin. In other words, whose image is represented by you? Whose image is represented by you and me? The Lord's. Then give back to the Lord what belongs to him. The coin belongs to Caesar, but the person belongs to God. Now, before we unpack this a little bit, I don't want us to make the mistake of concluding that Jesus is making a division between our spirituality on one side and our politics on the other. It's not as if Jesus is declaring, this is your life with God, and this is your life with the world, and never shall the two intersect. We can and should be political, and our faith, our understanding of God's character and his expectations for us should affect our political views and how we exercise them. What Jesus is trying to express here is that the question is not so much, is it okay to serve, as much as it is, whom are Are you really serving? The image that is in you is God's image, not the state's image. The impression we make out in the world ought to reflect reflect our allegiance to the character and purposes of our creator. The real question, beloved, is whose image are we bearing? Whose image are we bearing? From where or from whom do we find our value and our worth? What is our basis? What drives the decisions we make in terms of how we engage and treat one another in this life? Is it our politics? Are we valuing the things of Caesar, the reflection of our politics, more than the things of God, more than we are reflecting God's grace and love in this world? We can and should be political, but we can't miss the forest for the trees. What Jesus is stressing here is our obedience to the state and our obedience to God are not on the same level. The authority of the state and the authority of God are not equal powers. Another way to break this down is this way. Our politics shouldn't inform our discipleship. Our discipleship ought to inform our politics. Now that may seem obvious, but I would suggest to you it's not obviously lived out. Our politics shouldn't inform our discipleship. Our discipleship ought to inform our politics. And here's why. And this is beyond what Jesus says here, but other places where Paul writes about it and other encounters that we have. Here's the thing. Politics can't atone for our sins. Politics can't atone for our sins. Actually, sometimes politics makes it easier for us to hide from our sins rather than confess and repent of them. Laws, we know this, We know this, deep down, laws can't and don't save us. 
Laws can and don't save us. Laws exist to protect us. Laws exist to remind us of the boundaries and the limits. They exist to prevent or to reveal problems, but they cannot fix or clean up messes once they've happened. Laws cannot solve, ultimately, the greatest problem we have. And that's us. That's ourselves. Because we always look for, right? I mean, I'm not different in this. We always look for, we always find, we always justify the loopholes, the exceptions to the rule. You put all this together. Politics can't atone for our sins. Laws can't save us. And you, you go where, where this leads. Therefore, no human government is equal to the kingdom of God. Governments are a functional part of our world. But they are, no matter how good they are, including our own, a necessary evil. They are a functional part of our word, but they're a necessary evil. Remember back to, to Israel. Do you remember back to the beginning? I mean, this bears it out for us. Israel was emerging as a nation, as a state. And basically, what did Israel want? Remember? What did Israel want more than anything else? Wanted it so bad? A king. And God said, you already have a king. Duh, I'm your king. And they said, no, 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 it's almost like a Monty Python movie. We want a real king. We want one we can see and dress up real nice. We want a king we can point to and go, ooh, ah. And God says, you really don't need a king. No, we want one. And this typifies what I'm talking about. Governments, regardless of how good they are, and I'm talking about our own, are a functional part of our world, but they're a necessary evil. They're a poor excuse for the reign of God. Our politics shouldn't inform our discipleship, beloved. Our discipleship ought to inform our politics. What's the difference? You know, I I thought about this a lot this week, preparing for this sermon, and I kept trying to come up with what would be a contemporary example of the question that gets asked to Jesus. But here's the thing. Everything that I came up with that I might put before you, I was concerned was going to be so politically divisive I'd lose half of you. (laughs) So I'll leave it to you to decide what would Jesus be asked today? That's in the same vein as this. Instead, I'm going to take a broader understanding of how do we understand this idea of the difference between our politics informing our discipleship versus our discipleship informing our politics. And here's where I want to go. We've been kind of sitting in this, this, this space for several years now, a couple of decades actually, uh, and, and it's still a, a, an open wound for many of us. Many of us today continue Uh, Whether it's within our own family, whether it's our extended family, we continue to bemoan the rejection of America as a Christian nation. This idea that we're losing or forsaking or denying America's Christian roots as a nation. Many of us related to this are lamenting and and are just bemoaning the loss of the popular relevance of the church. Some of you have, have lived a little bit longer than others in this room, but the church is not in the same place culturally as it was a generation ago or two generations ago. And for many of us, this just gives us indigestion, keeps us up, frustrates us. And, and the thing is, is that this has been ongoing, but several decades ago, out of that frustration, something happened that we don't talk about, that we're kind of not even acknowledging has happened. Out of that frustration that, again, that America's losing its roots as a Christian nation, out of this, uh, this belief that we're losing our relevance as the church, out of that frustration, not recently, but decades ago, we began to look to politics to save the church. We began to look to politics to save the church, and we looked to politics to bring America back to Christ. 
And I want to be real clear not to divide the room because this isn't a, a one-side issue. It may have began decades ago with the emergence of the religious right, but in our own day and age, there's an, an ample and just as vocal religious left. So wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, this isn't a conservative or liberal issue. It's a, a broader issue of where we have collectively said, you know what? We are so concerned that we are losing our roots as a Christian nation. We need politics to bring America back to Christ. We're so concerned that the church is no longer relevant. We need to go through the political system to save the church. We're, and that's where we are right now. We're stuck in that place. And what I want to ask us this morning in light of what Jesus is teaching us, in light of the simplicity of Jesus' message, have we ever stopped to wonder if in doing this, in looking to politics to save our church, the church, in looking to politics to bring America back to Christ, have we ever stopped to wonder if in doing this we started giving to Caesar what only belongs to God? Have we ever asked ourselves, and this is a really touchy question, and, and this is, service is a little bit more multi-generational, so you'll hear this differently. Have we ever asked ourselves, if the past was as good as we thought it was, if the past was as good as we thought it was, what do we make of where we are now? And many people will get caught up in the, oh, because we, we rejected and betrayed and forgot and forsaken, all the things. Okay, I'll, let's agree to agree on that. But still, if the past was as good as we thought it was, then how did we end up here? Keep in mind, back to Israel, the political debates and division within Israel up until even the time of Jesus emerged out of a fundamental unwillingness of Israel to acknowledge her sins of the past as well as her current state of exile. I made a statement, I think, a week ago or two weeks ago, and it's really struck me when I said it, but still, Israel lost everything. The temple was taken down. They were sent into exile. And one of the fundamental messages of the prophets was there's no coming back until you embrace where you are. And all the division you see in the history of Israel is almost a, 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 an attempt to not acknowledge that, to, to continue to go, we can bring it back. And the statement I made a couple of weeks ago is, the temple is being re rebuilt in Jesus' day. But here's the funny, interest, funny is not the right word, the tragic thing, the first temple was indwelt by the glory of God, the second temple was never dwelt by the glory of God. And yet they kept building it, bigger and better. We're coming back, baby, we're coming back. If you read between the time between the Old and the New Testament, the history of the Maccabees, we're going to bring it back through political revolution. And the fundamental thing that they were missing is that the only way back was by acknowledging the sins of the past and accepting their current state of exile. Why do I bring this up? Because we don't, you might have heard it in some corners, but we're still not comfortable talking about this, but we need to say this out loud. The church in the Western world the United States and Europe is in exile. We are in exile. We are not what we once were, whatever what once we once were was. <laughs> and we can sit here and we can continue to lament the past even as we whitewash it and make it sound a lot greater than it was. Or we can celebrate our past, acknowledge what was truly good, even as we learn from our mistakes. And this is not a slam on the generations who've come before us. I said that in the first service. I'll say it again here. It's not a slam. It's a wake-up call to stop playing dead 
and to start practicing resurrection by following Jesus. If you're part of the greatest generation, so many in the greatest generation, they're like, they're so embittered, they're so frustrated that the world is not what it once was, that the church is not what it once was, that Jesus in the culture is not who he once was, that many of them, as they get older, are giving up, are cashing out. I said in the first service, it's like, if anyone watched Sanford and Son, woman who would like wave her handkerchief, I'm like, take me, Lord, I'm ready, take me now. Bring me home. A lot of our older people are just waiting to be released. And what I said to them, and I'll say to you if you fall into that demographic, is this is not your time to give up. This is not your time to cash out. We need your humility. We need your leadership. But we need you not to whitewash the past and tell us how much better it used to be versus how horrible it is now. Be honest about what was good and what wasn't so good so that we don't make the same mistake. Confess, model that humility, model that for us so we do not fall victim to the same mistake in our own generation, which we are and which we will. So many of of the greatest generation think that they're done And what I want to suggest to you is read the Bible. Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, and Moses did their best work in their 80s. You're not finishing up. You're just hitting your stride. And for those of us who are not on the other side of 60 or 80 or who are in our 40s or our 30s, you're just getting started. You haven't even come into your own yet. And yet for many of us in that demographic, and this is the the mindset we have to break, it's like we're paying our dues until we can coast. If we can coast... And we may not be able to coast because politically it's a train wreck. So we're hanging on for our peace. And then the younger people who are out there, you who aren't even 20 yet, or maybe you just pushed 20, you're like, you know what? This whole thing's probably going to blow up soon anyway, so I'm just going to have a great old time right here, right now. Let me let you in on a little secret. You're not the first generation to think that. And then all of a sudden you turn around and you realize, oh my God, I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 50. And, and it's not over, but the party that I was having is over. <laughs> Beloved, our politics don't inform our discipleship. Our discipleship informs our politics. Because here's the thing, the world has changed one person at a time. That's the gospel. We share the faith not by government mandate, but through personal modeling regardless of who is in office. Stop whining about who's in office and model what it means to follow Christ because it has nothing to do with Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but your image belongs to God, and that has nothing over what you can do. Love of neighbor cannot be legislated. God knows it's been tried. Forgiveness of our enemies is not granted by decree. We don't need the government to do that. We don't need laws to do that. And justice, beloved, will always be blind. Incomplete. Justice will always be blind. It will always be incomplete if it's pursued only by legal action or government intervention. Lives are transformed not through the passing of laws, but through the power of relationships, relationships built on Christ. And that's why we are in flux right now. You look around and you see empty seats. And again, many of us who've grown up in the church lament this. And there are some people who aren't anywhere, but there are other people who are outside what we understand as church, who perceive themselves to be the church even though they're not here because they have given up 
or they have shifted in their thinking and we need to understand this because this is part of, again, of us looking for our politics to save us. The church isn't an institution. The church isn't a program. The church isn't a building. The church is a movement. And there are some people who are not here because they're not anywhere, but there are other people who are not here because they understand if the church isn't moving, it ain't the church. Because here's the thing. Beloved, we move forward. We move forward. No matter which way the winds of politics blow, we move forward when we bear the image of God in Jesus. And you know why we move forward when we bear the image of God in Jesus? No matter what, we move forward because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And if you bear the image of Christ, if you pursue the character of Christ, it doesn't matter the political climate. It doesn't matter whether we're on top or whether we're in exile. It doesn't matter. The things of Caesar and the things of God are not of the same caliber. It's the difference between, as the scriptures say, being in the world, but not of the world. It's the difference between being worldly and heavenly. And we tend to operate in one extreme or the other. We're either too materialistic, too worldly, or we're too ethereal, so heavenly-minded, we're no earthly good. But one of the professions of our faith, and all of you know it in the Apostles' Creed, and it's fascinating, but it's so interesting, it's so important, is that we profess, we believe in a physical resurrection. We're not just spirits. We profess, we believe in the resurrection of the body. Understand what that means. We say we believe in a resurrection that's firmly grounded in both camps, the physicality of this life as well as the eternity of heaven. And that brings us to the second question, the one raised by the Sadducees. Their question about death is theological, it's philosophical, it's a philosophical issue. Unlike the question about taxes, this is more about wrestling with the abstract, the ethereal, one's perception of what life after death will be like, or won't be like, if you're a Sadducee. Notice that Jesus actually answers this second question. Not by way of a question, which is his tendency. No, Jesus comes right out and dismantles the assumption upon which the question is based. Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures, You don't know the power of God. The two, knowing the scriptures and knowing and recognizing the power of God are inseparable for Jesus. Jesus is basically telling them, you're looking at this all wrong. To deny the possibility of resurrection, Jesus is saying, is to deny the reality of God's power to give life. The Lord God is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And that means that our Father operates in the eternal now. When our Father speaks... He brings, he creates life. God speaks life into being. Therefore, God is always speaking in the present tense. And again, if that's hard for you to wrap your minds around, as it probably was for them, Jesus goes on to give a very practical example. He says, okay, remember how the Lord spoke to Moses about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Do you ever stop and think about how he talked to them? How did Jesus, how did, excuse me, the Lord talk to Moses about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? These three patriarchs were dead by the time Moses was alive, and yet God our Father speaks of his relationship to them in a present, ongoing sense. The Lord doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord declares, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is arguing this implies their eventual restoration to life, to resurrection. In other words, God doesn't tie his name to corpses, people. The Lord is the living God of living persons, not dead ones. Now, for all of us, we may all be going, well, yeah, great, nod our heads, yeah, amen. We just said we believe in the resurrection, right? The question is, are we living out of that belief? 
Or are we waiting to see if that belief is true? Hear that. Are we living out of that belief? Or are we waiting to see if that belief is true? How do we tell the difference? Again, a statement I made last week comes back into play. And I actually got a lot of conversation. I said this. Life after death isn't the same as life before death. Life after death isn't the same as life before death. Look at the Sadducees here. The Sadducees viewed resurrected life as being the same as this life, right? Uh, if she marries like seven guys, whose husband is she? Because that makes no sense to us here. They saw resurrection life as being the same as this life. But it's radically different, Jesus is saying. Resurrection isn't just reanimation. Jesus stresses here resurrection life and life on earth are not the same thing. In other words, eternal life will not just be the continuation of the same thing, life as we know it, only for much longer. Think about that. What do you think about resurrection? Resurrection is not the continuation of life as we know it, only just for much longer. Resurrection, Jesus says, is a complete transformation. Listen to what he says. Resurrection leads to a new dimension of life, like but not the same as the angels, Jesus says. Beloved, a new dimension of life means we live differently. We live differently. To better understand this, let's think about our birth into this world as an analogy. Before birth, and I recognize I'm not a woman, um, before birth, you'll see why I'm saying this in a second. Before birth, an infant is totally surrounded by a safe, warm environment. There's movement within limits, right? There's an awareness of presence, the sounds of voices, some touch. This infant gets all of its life from its mother, even though he or she cannot see her. When birth comes, you ever think about this? It must be quite a shock to leave the safe and secure confines of the womb and enter into a new world. But it's only after birth that a child can see his mother, that a child can be held and kissed and grow up further. That child can't live life the same way he or she once did. A child comes out and has to look to his parents in order to learn how to live, how to walk, how to talk, how to play in this big, bright new world. Could any infant imagine or anticipate life outside the womb? Can we? Like infants, we live on earth, totally surrounded by God. We have movement within limits. We have an awareness of our Father's presence. All life is given to us and sustained by God, even though our Father remains invisible to us. The promise of resurrection is like the promise of birth. Resurrection is the promise of seeing God face to face. Where once, Paul writes, we saw partially, we will see fully. Where once our knowledge was incomplete, our understanding will be total. However, unlike the infant in the womb who doesn't know what's coming next until he or she comes out of the womb, we do know. We anticipate. We have, in and through Jesus, an expectation of this new life, this resurrected life. If you're putting the pieces together, this is getting behind what Jesus means elsewhere when he talks to Nicodemus about being born again. Jesus is opening our eyes in his teaching, but ultimately through the cross and the tomb to our life beyond this one. And having that sight, we can't live the same way we once did. That, by the way, is your grid for everything Paul's trying to say in every letter he's writing to the churches. If you understand the resurrection, Paul will say, if the resurrection didn't happen, close up shop and go home. There's no point in being here. But if Jesus has been raised, then you can't live 
the way you lived before because you see things, you experience things, you anticipate differently. We need, like that infant, to take our father's hand to listen, follow, and learn from Jesus in order to be oriented to the life still to come. In other words, we are practicing resurrection now to live into our resurrection later. Let me draw out to you where I think we're missing this. What would you say, you can in your head answer this, is the centerpiece of resurrection? What's the hope of resurrection? What is the hope of resurrection? As you think about that, let me tell you as a pastor, what more often than not I confront as what people reflect back as the hope of resurrection for them. Not everybody, but most. When, I, when people, when they're grieving, when they've lost someone, when I'm walking through them with this, for most people, their instinctual way of, of talking about the hope of resurrection, what's the centerpiece of resurrection, is to talk about stuff like this. The hope of resurrection is I get to play golf for eternity. The hope of resurrection is I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want, with no consequences. The, ca- the, the hope of resurrection, to make it a little less comical, though that's often said, is the idea, the centerpiece of resurrection is the f- giant family reunion I'm going to have. All these people I'm going to meet who went before me, who I've missed. And I don't want to make light of that. I don't want to necessarily say that that's not part of resurrection. But if you're with me, is that the centerpiece? Is that the ultimate hope of resurrection? The ultimate hope of resurrection, beloved, according to the scriptures, what are we waiting for? What are we anticipating is not to play golf for eternity. It's not the eternal buffet. It's not even the, the, the incredible family reunion. The centerpiece, the hope of resurrection, according to the gospel, is meeting God. Of living with God. Think about this. On the flip side, this is the thing that we all complain about. I don't hear God saying anything to me. I don't see God. I don't see God doing anything in my life. I don't have that experience of God. The whole point, the whole hope is you will. You will. And yet, meeting God, living with God, in our instinctual response takes a back seat to our anticipation of playing golf, going to the buffet, seeing all the people that we miss. To to really make this hit home, what's happening is our human experience Our human expectations are at the center of our hopes, our understanding, our anticipation of resurrection, not God. And here's the question, beloved, if that's true, if we don't get to know God, if we don't have a relationship with God, if that's not a priority in this life, how can we expect to know God in the next? How can we expect to know God in the next? Let me say, I've said this before, let me try it another way. Salvation. Salvation is not some stamp that we get logged onto our passport now. Take out our passport of life. When was that day you gave your life to Jesus? Great. Got the stamp. When your time comes, you're going to clear customs without any problem. Welcome to eternity, my friends. You got the Jesus stamp? Come on right in. Many of us, that's it. That's it. Salvation is our passport stamp. But it's not. It's more than that. The experience of living for eternity. Do you ever think about this? The experience of living for eternity. Have you ever thought about living for eternity? The experience of living for eternity is not something that just magically happens upon our arrival. The baby doesn't come out of the womb and go, I got this. It's all good. No, no, no. Don't tell me anything. I've been waiting a long time. The baby's totally disoriented. Baby can't put any words together. The baby can't even take care of itself. 
Think of it this way. You can, and maybe you've had this experience in your life. I know I have. You can stumble upon a journey. You ever have stumbled upon a journey, and all of a sudden you find yourself in an unknown place or country? But it's a much different, richer, more powerful experience when we prepare for a trip. Is it not? Is it not when we prepare for a trip and we get ready for a voyage? Have you ever found yourself all of a sudden in a place where you don't know the language, you don't know the customs, and you're totally disoriented, and half the, more than half the time, if not three quarters, is just getting your bearings? And you feel like that was the experience? But how much different is it when we prepare for, an, for a trip, when we get ready for a voyage, when we learn the language, when we anticipate the culture and the customs before we leave? How much richer is that experience? Because eternal life, life with God, what Jesus is telling us over and over again, eternal life, life with God has values and concepts that are foreign, that are beyond what we think we can own or control. We live in a world of what we think we can own and control, and Jesus says you have to think to learn to think differently because the values and concepts, the customs and language of my father's house are different. The stuff of heaven, Jesus tells us, is impenetrable to moths, to mo to moth, uh, moths, rust, and thieves. The stuff of this life, you can collect it, you can use it, you can transfer it. Jesus says not so with the treasures of eternal life. You can't collect it. You can't transfer it. You can't use it up. Such treasures, Jesus says, are given in exchange for faith in things that are in our midst but can't be seen with the same sight. A different perception is required. Think of it this way. There is no continuity. There is no continuation between this life and the next apart from Jesus. There is no continuity, no continuation from this life to the next apart from Jesus. That's why we have this call to discipleship. That's why you can't just believe in Jesus and not be a disciple. It's not just about getting a passport stamp. It's about learning now how to live into the reality that's our future. It's, it's about Jesus teaching us as we follow, learning from how to start living eternal life, life after resurrection, life in the kingdom of God now. It's been said, the only certainties in this life are death and taxes. But this morning, Jesus has pointed us beyond death and taxes to an even greater certainty, the resurrection and eternal life. Our orientation to God is so important as we live on this side of eternity, are we reflecting the images of this world? Are we primarily concerned about what we have to give or don't have to give to Caesar? Or are we exploring and better understanding in whose image we are created? Are we reflecting to others not what we have to give, what's left over after the government takes its cut? Are we reflecting to others what we have been given by our creator, our father, that is beyond taxation. Our love, our mercy, grace, forgiveness, justice, truth. Our reflection of Jesus in our lives isn't the job of the state. It's the call and the work of discipleship because as Paul writes, our citizenship is in heaven. Are we answering the call to follow Jesus out of duty or out of expectation? Do we say we believe in the resurrection, hopefully, because that makes the stamp in our passport legitimate? Or are we actually living out of that belief? 
Is Jesus our ticket to get into heaven later, or is Jesus our teacher to learn how to live eternally here and now? The decisions we make, the actions we take now are shaping the journey we will take later into the fullness of our life in Christ. Please hear that. The decisions we make, the actions we take now are shaping the journey we will take later into the fullness of our life in Christ. We can't just wait and hope for eternal life. We need to allow, we need to submit ourselves to let Jesus prepare us for it, to train us for it, to develop and transform us for eternity. Because as the saying goes, practice makes perfect. Practice makes perfect. If we believe in the resurrection, we have to start practicing resurrection now. And when we do, when we reflect the image of the resurrected Christ, that's when revival happens. That's when transformation takes place. That's when we're moving forward. As Jesus continues to show us, practicing resurrection flows out of the revelation that there is more, much more, more than death and taxes, more in the present of our lives now and more on the horizon of our lives to come than we can imagine or hope for. Amen.